Welcome to the Ingle Angle Podcast. I am Fort Worth Star Telegram columnist Mac Ingle. I have a fun guest for this episode, and I'll get to him in a minute. But before that, I want to talk about my great love, Taylor Swift. You might have heard that recently, Taylor Swift broke up with her boyfriend of six years. Six years. This guy got away with not popping the question to Taylor Swift. Shout out to you, Joe Alwyn. I think that's how you say his name, Joe Alwyn? I don't know. Now I'm here to address the reports that I am the reason this duo broke up. I really didn't want to dignify these reports with a comment, but I was I am under a considerable amount of pressure from my advisors and my team to address this, so I'm just going to say this. I'm not going to confirm or deny the allegations that I am the reason Taylor Taylor Swift broke up with her boyfriend. I have no idea who this guy is, none. Uh, The only thing I know is that he's Taylor Swift's boyfriend. His bio says that he is a songwriter slash actor, which to me reads like a guy who doesn't have a job. And you go back to your high school reunion when he's like, oh, I'm like an actor and I'm a songwriter and I'm a thing. Well, once the guy leaves the conversation, you're like, yeah, this guy doesn't even have a job. Turns out he's Taylor Swift's boyfriend. Which, I mean, for six years, he conned the most coveted woman in America to be his shorty. Props. And to be honest, I don't know how anybody is Taylor Swift's boyfriend. She has more money than a Saudi Arabian prince. Every single conversation that she's in, she is the final say. So I don't know how that lends itself to a relationship where the pursuit is the almighty myth of 50-50. It doesn't. But there are winners in this loss. And the real winners are Swifties. Can you imagine the material that this breakup is going to lead to for her next album or concert tour? It may just get Jake Gyllenhaal and that red sweater off the hook. Speaking of concert tours, I recently attended Swift's show when she played AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas uh, at the 1st of April. It was the first of her three-night run where she drew more than a total of 210,000 people. 210,000 people paid exorbitant prices to watch her show, some of whom were in seats that were so high up you had to duck planes flying into DFW. Now you ask yourself, Mac, why would you attend a Taylor Swift concert? You're a middle-aged man. That's a little weird. That's true. I do like her music. I'm old enough now to admit certain things that I don't care anymore about what people think. Like I can sit there and say, yeah, this is what I like or what I don't like. I like certain junk food. I like Taylor Swift music. I went to a Britney Spears concert by myself. Easily the weirdest thing I've ever done. So when I went to the Taylor Swift show, I did not go by myself. It was really the chance to take my daughter to a concert the night before her birthday where she would turn 14. 
Now, several years ago, I took my daughter to Swift's 1989 concert. I think that was about seven years ago. And I've told people this, they don't believe me. That was one of the most enjoyable nights of my life. Really. We had so much fun. My daughter and I, not Taylor and I. That, that came later. <laughs> uh, but it really was a lot of fun. We just Both of us had a blast. We got into it, and it was one of those magical nights that you have with a child. You really didn't expect it. The, the, I got the tickets late in the day, and we went. We just had so much fun. So when she announced, when Swift announced her concert for this particular run back in November, there was such a crush of tickets that it overwhelmed servers, it overwhelmed Ticketmaster, it overwhelmed everything. And I thought, well, I can get tickets. Well, unfortunately, the demand for this show was unlike anything promoters had ever really seen before. And as many of you know, there are legislators who are trying to take aim at Ticketmaster to break up what they think is a monopoly. Because it is. The concert was great. The show was fun. Taylor Swift played for three hours straight. Even if you don't like her music, you have to respect the stamina and professionalism that she showed to give all of those patrons a great night out. You could tell she was trying to do something so grand and so big that people felt like they got their money's worth. Getting a seat for that show is a bitch. It was not easy. And there are moments in life, however, where you look at yourself as a parent and think, oh my God, is this worth it? Is all of this extra energy and effort and money and time, is it really worth it? Then there are those moments when the child gives you the reaction that you want. You don't know you want it until you get it. And I will say this, on that night, the night before my daughter turned 14, and I'm standing next to her at the Taylor Swift concert, I got the reaction I wanted. The Taylor Swift show was worth it. So my guest for this episode is not Taylor Swift. Uh, it's too busy. Maybe next week. Uh, instead, this, gep- this uh, episode uh, will feature a guest who has been around the great game of football since the 80s, early 80s. Uh, And he's one of these names that you always know, even if you can't necessarily remember why you know it. He's just got that name. Guy was the starting quarterback at the University of Iowa, and he would go on to win the Maxwell Award, the Davey O'Brien Award, and he would finish second uh, in the Heisman Trophy Award voting in 1985. He was named the Big Ten Offense, pardon me, the Big Ten Player of the Year in 1986, He was the 12th overall pick of the Detroit Lions. After his NFL career ended, he went into coaching where he worked on the offensive side of the ball at Iowa, University of Oklahoma. He was the head coach at San Diego State. And he's currently working for former Oklahoma coach Bob Bob Stoops in the XFL for the Arlington Renegades. The man has been around and around, and while he is not as big as Taylor Swift, he's close. He is Mr. Chuck Long. I'm an 80s kid, and so I obviously remember you from your days when you were playing at Iowa and you played for the Lions before you went into to coaching. Um, so the one 
there's a detail in this that I never did quite figure out. You grow up, you're, you're born in Norman, Oklahoma, during the yep. rolling days of Barry Switzer and the Sooners. You're raised in Wheaton, Illinois. Right. But you wind up playing college ball at the University of Iowa. Explain to me how that happened, how you go from Norman to Wheaton to Iowa. Yeah, okay. Well, as you as you uh, just alluded to, my side of the family is from Oklahoma. So uh, generation, uh, my, my family goes all the way back to the land run of Oklahoma. So, You're kidding, really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and so my parents both went to the University of Oklahoma. My dad grew up in Norman, and my and my mother grew up in Ponca City. And I was born in, in Norbert, Norman Regional Hospital. But my dad took a job uh, in Chicago when I was three years old. So my brother was just born. My middle, our middle brother, my middle brother, and so I was three. He was one, and we moved up to Wheaton, Illinois. You know, they just found a. They found an apartment, and then they settled and bought a home, and then we moved to another home in town. So my dad took a he, – he, he was a, a journalism major out of Oklahoma, and he took a – he became the editor of a small magazine in the city of Chicago called The Quill. And my mom still tells a story, you know, when when he came home and said, hey, I, I, got, I have this job offer, and I want to take this job. And she said, where is it? And he said, Chicago. And he, she said, oh, we're not going to Chicago. It's too cold up there. We don't have any <laughs> friends up there. But uh, they moved up there, and I grew up in Wheaton. went to Wheaton North High School. Uh, but I grew up a boomer sooner now. I mean, I was uh, every, every Thanksgiving um, – we, you know, our house shut down to watch Oklahoma and Nebraska now. And, uh, I'll never go forget going, uh, going to church every Sunday at 10 o'clock. And I don't know if you remember this, Mac, but, uh, at 1130 every Sunday, Keith Jackson would give the top 10 highlights, That's the right. highlights of the top 10 teams. Yep. And my dad was really anxious if that sermon went too long now because he had to get home <laughs> and watch his beloved Oklahoma Sooners because they were in the top 10 every year yep. in, you know, in the 70s. So I, I remember those days finally. And, and if we had time, we would go get some donuts along, you know, on the way home, you know, but uh, we had to get home at 1130 to, to listen to Keith Jackson on TV to give the top 10. Well, I grew up a boomer Sooner in Wheaton. I was the only Sooner in Wheaton. And my friends would always tease me about it. But um, I was not recruited heavily at all. In fact, my only offer was really Iowa. Uh, my first offer was the University of Iowa um, in December of my senior year. Now, you'll like this story. Um, but in December of my senior year, um, I get this phone call from the great Bill Snyder, you know, the legendary oh, yeah. Hall of Fame coach at Kansas State. He was my coach in, in college. And our, he was a, he was an assistant on Hayden Fry's staff at Iowa, right? Yeah, he was on right. staff with Barry Alvarez, Dan McCarney, wow. Kirk Ferentz, uh, wow. Bob Stoops, who was a GA, um, Bill Snyder. We, did, we had a legend. We had five Hall of Fame coaches on that staff. It was legendary staff. And, and of course, Hayden. So, they called me out of the blue, and Bill Snyder called me. I thought it was a practical joke. Now, let me give you a little <laughs> background. We only threw the ball five times a game in high school. 
Is that and still we won true? a state championship my junior year. But we ran the football. We played great defense. I mean, we were hard to stop running the ball. And when our defense was lights out. We won a state title, Mac, and I was uh, – I, I threw. I set an Illinois state record in that game. Will never be broken. I threw for minus three yards in that game. <laughs> <laughs> I was one for four for minus three yards, and we won a state championship. Anyway, that's my junior year. Fast forward to my senior year. We had a, we had a really good team coming back. We, we we lost our last game in the semis before the state title, and then I and then I started basketball. And I get this phone call from Bill. I thought it was my buddy Tom, you know, on a practical joke, and. Uh, you know, after I figured out that it wasn't Tom, then, uh, you know, Coach Snyder uh, said, hey, we'd like to bring you in this weekend for an official visit. It was the following weekend. I said, and, and bat- the games hadn't started yet. I said, yeah, I can, I can make it. I get off the phone. My father said, who was that? And I explained it. He said, they're going to bring you in this weekend? I go, yeah, they want to fly me in. He goes, are they going to pay for it? <laughs> so, anyway. <laughs> it was very surreal. It was a surreal weekend for me. I go to Iowa. I thought maybe they had the wrong guy. I'm like, you know, we didn't throw the ball. I'm like, what am I doing here? I felt like I was out of my element. Uh, I had all these studs around me in the recruiting visit. I'm like, okay, well, I get to Sunday, and Hayden sits me down and says, Charlie, you always call me Charlie because he loved my father. My father was, was was Charlie, and he said, Charlie, we're gonna we're gonna offer you a full ride scholarship. And he explained what it was. I jumped out of the chair and I said, thank you, coach. I want to be a Hawkeye. He goes, well, you just go home and talk it over to your folks. Make sure you want to come here. Well, it was my only offer at the time. So I go home. I said, mom, I, oh, you'll like this. I, 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 I fly into O'Hare airport. My dad picks me up. He said, how'd it go, son? I told him everything. I told him about the offer. And he goes, what does that cover? I said, he said everything, room, board, books, tuition, everything. And he goes, have they seen you play, son? <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, he, he had a great sense of humor. But anyway, long, long story longer. Uh, I got the offer. I got offered by Northwestern and Northern Illinois after that, not Illinois or anything or anybody else. Just they found out, they found out I got offered by Iowa. They, they said, Hey, we can't let an in-state kid go. Right. They must see something, uh, uh, Iowa must see something in him. So they offered me, but I knew I was going to be a Hawkeye. Well, my father wanted Barry Swisser to recruit me at Oklahoma. I said, Dad, Barry Swisser's not going to recruit me at Oklahoma. They, they want wishbone, fast quarterbacks, and I was not that fast coming out of high school. But he did get a letter from Barry Swisser saying, uh, they, you know, they looked at me. They, they think, you know, highly of me, you know, that, that old letter, you know, oh, yeah. to make you feel good, but they really yeah. don't want you. But he's, he always saved that letter from Barry Switzer. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's my story. I mean, I, I grew up a boomer sooner. I didn't get recruited. I got this phone call from that changed my life forever. It changed, literally changed my life forever. At what point did you realize, because you never threw the ball and that old era of, especially in the Big Ten, and obviously the big eight really didn't throw the ball. But at some point, Chuck, you realized that you could do something that your high school team and your high school coach didn't ask you to do. When did it occur to you? You're like, oh, wait a minute. I might be pretty good at this. And a lot of other teams missed on me. I had a good feel for the game. I knew I had an innate feel that you don't really coach. You know, I just had good vision I had a good feel for the game, even in high school when I did throw it. And so now 
when I got to Iowa, I was overwhelmed because I didn't even know what a cover two was. I mean, I didn't know coverages, you know, because we didn't have to in high school. I mean, when we threw the ball five times a game, guys were wide open, right? So, and they're always bootlegs and stuff like that. They're always moving the pocket. But I got to Iowa and I was overwhelmed by the whole thing. And I, I remember going about halfway through camp. I, I told my mom and dad, I said, I don't know if I can do this. This is really foreign to me. But I also knew, but my, I'll never forget my father saying, Hey, you have a great coaching staff there. He knew something about Hayden Fry. He said, they're going to do some magic there you just let those guys dig into you and they're, they're going to coach you well and they'll get you up to speed so i trusted that and i did i had two hall of fame coaches coach me and hayden fry and bill snyder i mean you can't get any better than that so i started i knew i had a good feel for the game and i knew i had an innate sense for it and then but it took me a while and really we went to the rose bowl that year i didn't That's play right. i was ended up being really I didn't redshirt that year, but it ended up being a, a redshirt type year. But we we turned it around in one year and in, in, in Hayden's third year. And and I was a freshman on that team. It was an unbelievable run. But I remember being at and I was the scout team quarterback all year. And I remember being at the Rose Bowl and it, it just started to click. I was I was throwing the ball well off the cards, off the off the look squad. And I mean I was I was picking them apart, so to speak. You know, I just felt like, man, I am, maybe it was the California air. I don't know what it was, but it, I just felt like uh, it just kind of settled in. I remember one of our older players say, Hey, you might, you might make it in this league. You might be all right. You know, um, I, let me, let me flash back. I got a flashback to my first training camp in, in the training camp. I was a scout team quarterback and we played Nebraska the first game. So I was running wishbone, Nebraska stuff, and I did not have a red shirt on. I was live. I was uh, they, and, and they beat me to a pulp in that in that <laughs> scrimmage. I'll never forget it. And I, I remember sitting in my locker, thinking, "Oh, I, I'm I'm in way too deep." And Bill Snyder came up to me, and I thought he was going to console me. Hey, hang in there, you'll be fine. He comes up to me, says, "Welcome to the Big Ten, son." And then he walked away. <laughs> that was it. That was his pick me up. Yeah, they didn't feel sorry for me at all. But I felt like that Rose Bowl practices, man, I started getting a groove. And then I ended up being a, uh, I had a, I had a really good spring game. My very first spring game scrimmage, I went 15 of 16 throwing the ball. Wow. Yeah. And, and I was hot that day and I never looked back and, and Hayden, uh, you know, fell something that day and, and I continued to be the starter. And there was like five of us fighting for the job. Our two senior quarterbacks had graduated from the Rose Bowl team the previous year. So it was wide open with five guys. And I just emerged after that game and after that spring scrimmage and really never looked back. And so, um, he did bench me. Uh, I, I, let me, let me fast forward to the Nebraska game that year. We beat, we upset him the year before when I wasn't playing. We beat him 10 to seven, really launched Hayden's Iowa legendary career that game and, and got us to believe. The next year we had a young team. They had the same team. They beat us to a pulp 42 to seven. And I had a miserable day. My first start, I was throwing, I threw interceptions. I threw ball in the dirt. I, I, it was so hot, Matt. It was so hot. I remember going to the sideline in the fourth quarter. I called a timeout. 
we're getting beat 42 to nothing. And I get to the sideline and Hayden always wore like a black top and, yeah. and legendary white pants and shoes. That was his trademark. And I get to the sideline and he said, son, why are you calling the timeout? The game's over. Let's get this game over with. And I threw up all over his pants and shoes. <laughs> I barfed all over him and he was so mad. Uh, he just, he took me out of the game. He says, get this boy out of the game. He's done. <laughs> he benched Is me that why you called the timeout to vomit? Yeah, I just was sick. I was, uh, I was feeling, you know, I couldn't do anything in the huddle. I was about to, about to throw up. Oh, about that's to great. Um, he was so mad at me. But anyway, so he benched me for the next game against Iowa State, and Iowa State beat us. And then he just decided, let's throw the young guy in there. We're zero two, going down to Arizona in the hot desert heat at a night game. They had Ricky Hundley on that team, and we we upset him. We beat him to go to to go one and two, and and then we went to the Peach Bowl that year. And the Peach Bowl really in 1982, I was struggling throughout the year, just fighting through the year, just to get a grasp of Big Ten fast play and grasping the offense, etc. The Peach Bowl, we lit it up. Uh, through the air and I got hot and uh, that was the game to answer your question. I know I'm making these long stories. It was a good podcast, but I, uh, <laughs> I finally got in the groove. I finally realized after that peach bowl victory that, Hey, I can play in this big 10. I can play in the big 10. That was when, that's when the moment hit me. I okay. felt it in the Rose bowl the day, you know, but it was only practice, but game wise, it was the peach bowl for sure. Chuck it's because you were unre overlooked, and this is before recruiting rankings or anything like that, then eventually after your playing career is over, you go into college coaching. Um, so you've experienced how much this whole thing has changed. As it relates to recruiting and now the big business that is recruiting rankings and recruiting ranking services and all that, I'll be transparent. I hate it. I don't think it's been good for it, but I understand it's a part of the landscape now. As a former player who wasn't recruited, as a former college coach, you're a pro coach now, but as a former college coach, what do you make of the accuracy of recruiting ranking services now? Oh, you know, I I, I think they're getting better, obviously, with more film to watch. They're watching these kids at a younger age, but I know there's also... Um, I know they may give more stars than they really deserve. I, I think there's politics involved with that. Um, I never really paid attention to them, to be quite honest. Now, if I got a list of four or five star kids, you know, it's hard. It's hard to, you know, a five star kid is a five star kid. You know, he shows up pretty good on film. But uh, as far as lower than that, I really didn't pay much attention to him as a coach because I wanted to see with my own eyes. And I wanted to research the kid, his background, because that meant a lot to our, the head coaches as well. I like two-sport athlete kids for sure. We didn't really recruit anybody that, that wasn't a, a two-sport athlete. Those are parameters that we went by. Each coach is a little bit different. But I, I needed to see the tape as opposed to the stars. The stars were kind of a starting point, mm -hmm. but there was kids that they missed. I mean, I think I would have been a two-star kid. Maybe You would have been a two-star kid. Yeah, maybe, wow. maybe three. I, probably, I was an all-state player. I had, but you never I, threw the ball. Yeah, didn't, didn't throw the ball, but I made all-state and because because we ran, I could run. Mm -hmm. You know, so we we I'd made yards that way. But um, I, I think I would have been a two-star kid. So that's that's another reason why 
hey, let's make sure you watch this tape and watch it, you know, with a fine-tooth comb and watch every detail and watch every pass. If there's a quarterback like me that didn't throw it, uh, I want to watch every game and every throw kind of a deal. So um, it's a starting point. I think it's great for fans, obviously. It's great yeah. for recruiting rankings. Uh, I think, you know, there's a service there. Uh, there's people making a living at it and, and feeding their family doing that. So I'm all about that as well. And, and, you know, the more power to them doing it and, and they put their life's work into it. So, uh, I understand that it, it was always a starting point for me, but I, I always wanted to watch that film. I don't know if you saw this, but a while back, Trent Dilfer was doing an interview for the ESPN 30 for 30 on those great Baltimore Ravens teams that he was the quarterback yep. of, the one that won the Super Bowl. And, you know, Trent's very media savvy, and he has this he has this line, and I'm paraphrasing here, Chuck, I imagine you saw it. He's basically saying the quarterbacks today, and he specifically mentions Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady, he said he loves them, but he's not impressed by that. Basically because the way the game is officiated now and the rules changes, the quarterback position today, what he's implying is a lot easier today than it was when he played, and you predated him. When you watch the quarterback play today, whether it's in college or pro, do you feel like it's not the same position because it is the rules changes have made it easier for them, or is that a victim, or is Trent's a, a perception of it just changed because he's twenty years removed from playing and he forgets just how hard it was? I, I wouldn't use the word easy just because nothing's easy at that position. Is it's the most uh, uh scrutinized position in all of sport is it's the hardest i think position in all of sports still the quarterback position there's a lot that goes into it mentally uh still i think what's made it better and i hate to use the word easier is there's you don't you don't ha- you don't have to hit the court you don't get the the hits on the quarterback I think it gives them more freedom to improvise yeah. because they know there there's rules against the big hits against them now, you know, as opposed to when I was a player, there was no rules. Right. And, uh, so, uh, I do believe that defenses have become more sophisticated over time. I mean, I was not, I was at the beginning of the zone blitz in the NFL, just the beginning of it. And now they're, you know, they're doing all kinds of zone and man blitzes now. So I don't think it's easier. I just think it's, uh, Less physical, I guess, is the best way to put it, playing that position, which I think the rules are good. You know, you, you know the concussions and what's going on with that and the CTE. Uh, you know, I think it's a good thing that they're protecting players more all the way around. But I think it's just, it's become less physical for quarterbacks, but I don't think it's become easier. And the other part of that is just, there's more scrutiny. I mean, I didn't, we didn't have social media and all that Twitter and all that stuff, you know, and I think, and, and, and you, you got to say, I know the NFL guys look at all that stuff. I mean, the quarterbacks look at all this stuff, the families feel it. And, and so I think it's, it's very challenging. I think they deserve every penny that they get. And, and it's a short lived, obviously career. Uh, you know, I think the, the average career has gone down tick, tick, tick over time because of the physicality or the speed of these players now. I think it's the, the defense, the, the, the players on the field are so much faster than they were than when we were, you know, when I was playing. So that, that's the difference too, as well. It's made it not as easy. It's made it very challenging for those guys. Uh, the other part of that 
is you're seeing the athletic quarterback, the, the dual threats now are coming into the league, which is was never the case in the 80s when I was playing. It was always the tall 6'4 pocket guy. But now you get the guys that can move around. So they're hit, they're getting hits down the field, but they can move around and are athletic. Some of these guys like Mahomes and, and uh, I mean, these guys, the way they play, it's just unbelievable. Lamar Jackson, all these guys, unbelievable when you watch them play. And uh, they're so athletic. So that's been the big change too. But I don't think it's, it's any easier. I think it's just, it's more cha- it could be more challenging in a lot of ways. For players today, or even coaches today, what do you look back on from your playing career, whether it was University of Iowa, the Lions or the Rams? that you guys did that was standard operating procedure back then because no one knew any better that you would never get away with today that was routine back when you either played or you practiced? Well, Patrick Mahomes, I mean, the way he sidearms the balls, you see a lot of these guys doing that now, throwing sidearm passes, shovel passes and stuff. That was... That was taboo back then. Okay. You didn't do that. <laughs> and you barely got into the shotgun formation. You know, the Dallas yeah, Cowboys, right. Tom Landry, you know, you followed Tom forever. He was like the first ever to do shotgun and lived in it. And, uh, but most old line coaches, that was taboo back then too. They, there's no way a lot of line coaches are going to allow shotgun to happen. So I think you're seeing, you know, obviously you see gun offense, you know, and, Shotgun offense and everything and run game. You know, the quarterback run game was not even a, a, a hint back then. I mean, quarterbacks didn't run it. They didn't read the defensive end for the run pass options. Did they tell you I not mean, to run, Chuck? When you played with the Lions, did they tell you don't even buy or was it already, was it implied you're not running the ball? You know, it was implied and they said you're not running. Now, occasionally there was a sneak. But very rare, even that. I mean, they didn't want they didn't want any extra hit on a quarterback at all. Now, when I did run, there was times where you had to, you broke the pocket, and no one's open, but you're you're sliding early. You know, you're getting down early. But the quarterback, the the RPOs, the run pass options, the quarterback read game. I, that was those are great inventions in the game of football, and they they were not even close to being around back then. So when you went to the Lions, you're the 12th overall pick in the draft by Detroit in 86, and the Lions had struggled for forever, but you had won in high school, you had won at the University of Iowa, now you go to Detroit, which the Lions were bad, they weren't winning, uh, they and they've been bad for a long, long time for whatever reason, but now all of a sudden you go to a situation that you're that's foreign to you, you're losing football games, and you're losing a lot. No one ever talks about that part of it, of, of professional sports, is when you're losing. Chuck, when you look back on that now, how did that experience change you, uh, you when you go from winning to losing? Well, we were winning a lot in college. Never never heard of Boo Bird. <laughs> I go to Detroit. I go to Detroit and heard, heard boo birds for the first time in my life. I mean, I was shocked. <laughs> you know, I I knew I, I didn't go to many pro games growing up. You know, I did. I went to I went to see Walter Payton a couple of times. You know, growing up, and, and my dad took me or some friends did, and they didn't they didn't boo the Bears because they had Walter Payton. You know, Walter Walter was magical, right. and so I never really heard boobers before until I got to Detroit 
And uh, so that was a significant change for me. Oh, my God. They're not only booing, but they're booing me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, obviously, I mean, you're laughing about it now, but when you were in it, was it crushing? Yeah, it was just, it was, yeah, it was just uh, discouraging. It was like, oh, my gosh, wait a minute, give me some time here to settle in. You know, I need a couple of years here. Quarterback, getting back to quarterbacks today, I mean, they're going in so much more prepared. They they grow up with seven-on-seven leagues. They're throwing the ball when they're, like, five years old and all that, you know, growing up. And they're so much more prepared going into the NFL now. I mean, I was lost again, so to speak, you know, the speed of the game. Hey, I need a little, I need a little, uh, I need a little help here. Give me some time. I felt like in year two, I started to get in the groove. I started to get in the groove and had a, had a really a, a decent year in a strike shortened season. If oh, you remember right. 1987 mm-hmm. and, um, had a really nice game against Green Bay that year. My very first win as a starting quarterback was at, it was against the Dallas Cowboys at home that year. Um, and so we, we started to gel. And then year three, I, I, uh, something happened to my elbow. In the off season, I, I just threw it. I threw it out, and I had to have Tommy John surgery after the year. I couldn't. I couldn't throw. I couldn't throw the rest of the year, and I, I just felt like that year three was going to be really pivotal for my development, our development as a football team. And it just it sidelined me the whole year, and I ended up getting surgery the following February out in, by Frank Job out in California. Mm-hmm. And it just never, the arm just never, and I rehabbed it as hard as I can. I just never had that, that, you know, that throw, that, that arm strength again. And, and then they, I basically sat out the, my fourth year too, cause I had surgery in February and Dr. Joe said it's going to take you a full year to recover. So I was not only out in 88, I was out in 89 and then they decided to trade me. They drafted, you know, they, you know, the NFL, it's not for long. They're not going to wait around forever. And they decided to go to run and shoot with Mouse Davis and June Jones, brought those two guys in and they drafted, uh, Rodney Pete and Andre Ware. Uh, and then, and then Eric Kramer was, uh, they brought him as a free agent. So I was the odd man out. I'd been injured. They traded me to LA to the Rams with John Robinson. I stayed there a year, just wasn't quite the same. They, they released me the following camp and then Detroit picked me up when Rodney Pete got hurt. They picked me back up halfway through the year and actually stayed another three years in Detroit, but I never, I never re your arm, uh, was your arm ever the same again. Never the same again. And, but I think they're doing so much more and better things with Tommy John. And, you know, obviously baseball pitchers are getting these done and, and coming back a lot quicker. Yep. I don't know if any quarterbacks have had it. Um, it's a little tough for coming back as a quarterback, but I just never, uh, regained that I, I, again, my arm strength. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie or not. I know you've heard of the title. Friday Night Lights was a book, then it became a movie, a TV show, and God knows everything else. But there's a line in it, and I want to ask you about it because you lived it. There's a line in the movie where the Billy Bob Thornton character, who plays the head coach of Odessa Permian, tells his star quarterback, uh, you and I both know the only difference between winning and losing is the way people treat you. It's a great line. I love the line. But you lived it. You won big, and then you lost. Is, is that line true, Chuck, that the only difference between winning and losing is ultimately the way people treat you? Yeah, that's a great line. Uh, there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, there's more, there's more to winning and there's more to losing than just that statement. But, um, it, it, there's a lot of truth to that for sure. Um, you know, people, people treat you well when you're winning. 
they don't treat you very well when you're losing. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine, like, you're talking about social media, and you're the quarterback of the Lions, and they're booing you at the stadium. And, yeah. or, but at least I would imagine back then in the 80s, you could kind of get away from it if you went home, if you went back to Illinois to see your folks. Now, because of these stupid things, you can see the reactions all the time. Could you have imagined going through that with access to phones and just how mean people are because they can be anonymous and they don't have to tell you to your face? I mean, could you imagine going through that now compared to when you were playing with Detroit in 86, 87, 88? Yeah, I, I couldn't imagine it. I mean, the way these, these players, especially quarterbacks, manage the social media, I don't know how they do it. Because I know they're looking at it and they oh, feel sure. it and hear about it. And it's just tough to manage, you know, and unless you're guys at the top of their game, like Brady and Aaron Rodgers, who, you know, they don't, no, they're, <laughs> they're so good. They don't, they don't have to worry about all that stuff. But when you're trying to make it and then you're here, you know, you're trying to establish your career and you're trying to, you know, uh, get a resume built for yourself. And then you have that on top of it, you know, you're listening to that. It can, it can be discouraging. It can get you down. I mean, there's, it's human nature to, to, you have to have a tough skin, a real tough skin and, uh, to get through all that. But it, I think that's a tough, uh, it's like the quarterback's fifth quarter. I call it, uh, is how to deal with the media. When I was a coach, I always talked about the fifth quarter for a quarterback because you and the head, the quarterback and the head coach, the fifth quarter is dealing with the media, how to deal with the media. And I would, I would coach them up on it. Um, you know, with, without social media, I would save all the newspapers clippings for the quarterback I was coaching would not let them read the newspaper. Don't do that. You, you, you'll, the emotion of that high or low will just wear you out. So I try to keep the newspapers away from them, but I collected them. Uh, in a box form and gave it to them at the end of the year for their scrapbook. And because I think those are really great mementos. I grew up with a journalist. My father was a journalist and I, and I, uh, understand the value of media and, uh, the job that they're trying to do that you're trying to do. And I, re- I've always respected that. So, but I always tried to keep the quarterback on an even keel at the same time. But today, I don't know how coaches really do that. You know, I don't do it with my guys because they're pros and they handle it and they got to handle it the best way. But for a collegiate quarterback, I don't know how they manage that part of it because it's out there for sure. Chuck, you've you've heard this saying probably a lot in the last however many years in regards to college ball. And I know you're coaching pro, but you're hearing a lot these days around college players is that they're basically pro. And now that the money is over the table, no one really has to hide a $1,000 handshake or a car or whatever side benefit that may have been around NCAA rules back in your day. Well, now they're all out in the open and no one really cares anymore at all. But when you do hear that thought or that sentiment about, well, a college player is basically a pro player. Is that right? Is a college player basically a pro player now because the compensation's over the table? Or do you feel like, no, they're not pros yet? They're not pros yet just because uh, the, the, the professional game is such another level of, of football, of physicality, of, of preparation. It, it becomes your job. The only thing that – why people say that is because of financial reasons. You know, they're getting paid now. And, you know, before that happened, the pro, you know, once they got paid, they were professional. But that's the only similarity other than that. They're just not the college guys are just not mature enough 
yet to handle the NFL game. Uh, they still need that maturation process at the collegiate level before they can even, you know, think about handling the NFL game. I, I don't foresee it. Maybe it'll happen. Who knows? Maybe there's a LeBron James that comes right out of high school and goes right to the NFL. Never say never, but man, it's so much different because it's, uh, the speed of the game is so much different. There's a, it's a 22 man game. Um, you have, there's a lot of moving parts to it. And, you know, especially when you're the quarterback, you got to know everything there is to know about defense and offensive, uh, you know, protections, run game, et cetera. It's just, I, I know this. I, I felt I was as prepared as anybody coming out of college. I had two of the greatest coaches coach me and Caden Fry and Bill Snyder, meticulous coaches. I was still overwhelmed at the NFL. I, when I say overwhelmed, I knew I could grasp it eventually. But when I got there, I'm 23 years old. I was like, oh my gosh, this is a whole different game. I got to get used to. So it, it, it takes a while. I remember Tom, the great Tom Landry. Now today, not the case anymore, but the great Tom Landry would once said, it made me feel better at the time that a professional quarterback, it takes six years for him, a professional quarterback to fully understand the game of football at six the NFL years. level. Six years. That's what he said back then. Now, today, I think it's different, Matt, because these kids are growing up in a whole different uh, collegiate offense, very similar to pro what the pros are doing. And they have so much throwing now and passing leagues and all that. And I think it's a little bit different today. Uh, I got two more questions for you, and I'll let you go. And I love asking former players this um, in any sport. And you and I, when I met you, I, I kind of tossed this out. So who is the best player? player that you ever played against in college so when you were at Iowa you played all against all those good teams whether it was Nebraska or all those great big team great great teams in the Big Ten who's the one that still stands out today without a doubt Wilbur Marshall of Florida when we played him in the Gator Bowl really what Wilbur Marshall went on to the Bears as part of that great defense and uh, the you know the monsters yep. of the Midway team what was it about Wilbur Marshall that stood out and, that, and and we played and that's and that's why he stood out because he you know he came back to haunt us as a Chicago Bear too but <laughs> he was so fast and physical one of the best blitzing linebackers you'll ever see you know everybody talks about Mike Singletary Mike right. was a great player Hall of Fame player but we always had to worry protectionally where Wilbur Marshall was but got a first taste of him <laughs> when we played Florida in the Gator Bowl in 1983 and he was all over the field. I mean, he he just was wherever I was, he was there. I mean, it was unbelievable the speed and tenacity that he played with. Uh but he he's the one that sticks out for sure. Okay, now you're going to the NFL. So this is the NFL one. Who's the best player you played against when you were an NFL player? Absolutely. Uh, it, uh, the best one. Oh my gosh. There's so many good ones. He, he definitely stands out. That whole defense, the whole defense of Chicago, the Chicago Bear defense, everybody stood out. So when Lawrence I, Taylor? Uh, well, I never, I was not a starting quarterback. Oh, okay. I was hurt. I was injured okay. when we played the Giants, but I knew going into the game, we had to set all of our protections to protect him too. <laughs> you know, we had to double team him. Uh, the whole game, but I was not the starter, uh, fortunately. <laughs> so you mentioned Wilbur Marshall. You mentioned there's one element that I got just a couple minutes left. There's you played the Lions and you played in that era when virtually every stadium in the NFL was AstroTurf. Just how hard was that surface in Detroit? Because when I go back and I watch highlights, 
Well, it, usually it's Barry Sanders highlights, and he's embarrassing everybody on the Pontiac Silverdome carpet. But every hit looked like it hurts. Did I mean, you grew up playing on AstroTurf in the Big Ten? Did that surface look as painful as it was as a to a viewer? Absolutely, very painful. And but we had the same painful turf at at, at Iowa. No. <laughs> I mean. It, it was painful, but you know your body got used to running on it and got it got hit on it. You get all the the turf burns is what got you. I mean, you get in the shower with all those turf burns. I mean, you had burns all over your body and it just hurt. But um, yeah, the, the, those astroturfs were hard. I mean, the playing surfaces today are so much better and better to land on and all that. And yeah, it hurt. I think that obviously limited limited uh you know your your career uh, you know obviously with your knees and you, you know pound, the pounding on your knees and everything so yeah most definitely sure chuck um i really want to thank you for your time you've had a great career and obviously doing still very well as a coach with the xfl's arlington renegades thank you so much for taking the time to join me today i really appreciate it well, I want to, uh, let me end with one, one thing i want to show you something really neat Let's see. i'm in bob Stoops's office here i saw in, in that yeah yeah, over here at Choctaw Stadium, and so he he probably put this picture on the wall. Let me let me let me show you this picture if you can see it. Can you see this picture? Yeah, I can see it. All right, so this is our staff at Oklahoma uh, that won the Rose Bowl in two thousand and three. We beat Washington State, and they had Mike Price as their head coach. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's me, of course. That's Bob. That's John Hayes, our offensive coordinator. Yep. Uh, and Mike Stoops, his brother. And the reason why this picture is up there, because we all played together at Iowa. We were all teammates at Iowa together, okay? And we never won a Rose Bowl at Iowa together. Oh, wow. So we took a picture. We were in Oklahoma. It was the first It was the first non-Big Ten team I remember to go to the Rose Bowl, yeah. if you recall. I remember that. Uh, they were doing some round robins. Yeah. Iowa actually uh, uh, won the Big Ten or tied for the Big Ten. They went to the Orange Bowl that year. Well, so the, the the standing joke is we can never win it as players at Iowa. We had to go to Oklahoma in the Big 12 to win the Rose Bowl. That's great. <laughs> well, thank you, Chuck. I, I really appreciate it. Congratulations again. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Matt. Good, okay. good to talk to you. Take care.